On our particular, our own, our day off that we had, which was Monday, um, this past Monday, the pastor and his wife gave us a tour of Eleuthria, the island that we flew into. Eleuthria is 110 miles long and only an, a mile wide. And so we flew into that island, and that's where we flew out of. Beautiful island, um, but it's only 110 miles long. And, and so we spent a large part of the day on Monday, and we went to a place called the Queen's Bath, um, Bath, as they say over there. And we were on these rocks, and, and I was wondering why they call it the Queen's Bath, and then the Queen gave me a bath. Uh, there was a major wave, and I was the only one hit for some reason, uh, but I was baptized again. Uh, but then we went to a place called the Preacher's Cave. And the Preacher's Cave is one of the most beautiful places in the Bahamas. Um, it's this major cave, okay? It's got all these little different tunnels. It would be a wonderful place for children to play. You've got light coming through and all these little secret passageways. And there is a rock that looks like a pulpit right there in the middle. Let me tell you a history about this cave. Um, it was first discovered by a man named William Sells. He and his men that he called the Eleutherian Adventurers... Now, Eleutheria means freedom. He and his men were fleeing religious persecution in the 17th century. And they left Bermuda. And after two months, there was this major storm. They hit this um, coral reef and they land on this island. Okay? And it's 1647. And they're trying to make their way across this island. And they discover this cave. And for the next 100 years, the, this, this people group, these men and their families and generations to follow, worshipped in this cave. In fact, the inscription at the mouth of this cave uh, reads this, William Sell shipwrecked at devil's backbone and found refuge here. Sermons held 100 years. And so I, I stood up into that pulpit and um, did a little sermon, you know, shorter than the ones I preach here. But um, you see, these, these guys were Puritans. And what they were fleeing from is what has been called compel religion. Compel religion, where a government compels you to believe in a certain way. You must, in this case, believe... Um, like the Church of England, compel religion. And that's why they named that island Eleutheria Island, because the name means freedom, freedom from religious persecution. You know, this view, uh, compel religion, has been held by many in history, including many Christians. In fact, it's this compel religion that's behind most of the religious wars uh, in uh, the 2,000 years since the Lord Jesus Christ ascended. You have, in fact, uh, Roman Catholics and Protestants who are fighting and killing one another in the 16th and 17th century. You have uh, Reformed and Lutheran Protestants who are killing thousands of Anabaptists in the 16th and 17th century in Switzerland and, and Germany. The Anabaptists were the people who believed that... Um, 
Only believers' baptism should be honored. Uh, a church should be only made up of believers. And so they were persecuted by these groups. And today, fortunately, there's only a small um, minority of fringe Christian groups who hold to this compel religion. This idea that the government has the authority to compel you to believe in Jesus Christ and to believe in a certain way. But we all know, as from 9-11, that uh, there are still um, religions that promote compel religion. Government-enforced religion. Many Islamic countries are that way today. Uh, they force you to, to believe a certain way or you die. You die by the sword. And you see it in a lot of the sub-Saharan African countries like Nigeria, uh, where Christians are being destroyed every day. Um, and so uh, this compel religion is a very dangerous, dangerous um, idea. Um, it has been used to justify persecution and the slaying of many people over the centuries. But... Compel religion is the result of not only misunderstanding the human heart. You see, the human heart cannot be compelled to believe and love a certain way. Um, I can't make, I can't compel my children to love Jesus. And the government surely can't compel a people to believe or love in a certain way. But it also arises because of a misunderstanding between what belongs to Caesar and what belongs to God. And that's what makes this text so important to us today. There's no text that better helps us come to terms with that than our present text. This text is against the idea of compel religion. And it's also the central text that that helps us navigate between the relationship between politics and religion. And so we will look at this text today. It's very helpful. Now, at this point in our text, at this point in the narrative, um, the leaders, that is, the Jewish leaders, know they cannot take a frontal assault against Jesus. They want him dead. They absolutely want him dead. In fact, he's going to die in about two days. But they know they can't make a frontal assault against him at this point because he's still so popular with the people, the masses. And so they concoct a plan that they think is going to help them bring him down. They think this plan is either going to get him in trouble with the Roman government or it's going to cause him to lose popularity with the masses. Either way will work with these religious leaders. And we see in verses 19 to 22 their entrapment. At least their uh, plan to entrap him. Notice in verse 19. It says, The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour. For they perceived that he had told this parable against them. But they feared the people. Now, the last time we were together in Luke, we saw the parable that he's speaking of there. It's the parable of what I call the, the cornerstone. And that came in response to a question that they asked Jesus about whose authority do you do these things? 
By whose authority do you operate, that you minister, that you speak, that you do these mighty works? Whose authority was it that you came in and uh, cleaned up the temple? And now you're teaching in the temple. And he gave them, in response, a, a parable. And he tells this story about a landowner who has these tenants of a vineyard. The tenants are the spiritual leaders of Israel. And he sends his servants, who represent the prophets, to bring, to, to receive fruit from um, the vineyard. And these tenants, instead of giving these uh, prophets the, or the servants the, the fruit from the vineyard, they persecute them. They, they mistreat them. And then he sends his only son. And instead of just mistreating him, they kill him. And Jesus ends that parable by speaking of the fact that he is the cornerstone. He is the stone that the builders have rejected. But this stone is going to become the great capstone. And those who do not believe in him will be crushed by him. Now they're really incensed at Jesus at this point. They understood what he was saying. They recognized there was something unique about him. Or they wouldn't have asked the question, whose authority do you do these things? But they did not believe him. That is, their hearts would not allow them to submit to Jesus. And so they're, they're, they're essentially going to try to get him in trouble with the Roman government. And we're reminded here that our tactics reveal our hearts. Our tactics... Our strategies, that is, always reveal our hearts. These people appear to love God. They appear to be acting in the name of God. They appear to be zealous for the name of God. Um, they perceive Jesus as one who is blaspheming God. And so, at surface level, these people look like lovers of God. But the fact that they are so cunning and deceitful reveals that the glory of God wasn't really what was animating their behavior. The glory of God was not what was motivating them. And it's the same way with us. You know, we, we can uh, have the songs of Zion that we sing. We can have the language of Zion that we speak. We can really appear to be jealous for the glory and the name of God. And then something happens that we don't like. Someone comes to a church that we um, rubs us the wrong way. Someone does something that hurts us. And our tactics to get them back, okay? To save our name, to appease our conscience, whatever it may be, reveals that maybe... The glory of God is not what is animating us in this situation. Um, you see, the, the tree is known by its fruit. Luke taught us that in chapter 6, verses 43 to 45. And these people are revealing what kind of tree they are. So they, they, they go to these, um, these people um, that, he, that they call spies... And they're going to use these spies to try to infiltrate uh, Jesus' life and get him in trouble. Um, notice in verse 21, it says, So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality 
but truly teach the way of God. These spies are seeking to use a strategy that we've all used. It's called flattery. All right? Now, flattery and encouragement are two different things. I'll have someone say to me, I don't want this to go to your head. Well, if it's encouragement, they don't realize there's a lot of things that pastors go through that keep them from going to their head. But um, encouragement doesn't go to a person's head. If you're seeking to encourage someone in the Lord, the goal is their edification. Uh, Their goal, the goal of that is conformity to Christ. It's you're serving as a means of grace so that that person can persevere in faith. That's encouragement. Flattery is completely different. Flattery is self-serving, okay? And flattery really is a close uh, cousin to gossip. But there's a difference as well between gossip and flattery. R. Kent Hughes is helpful here. Uh, Gossip is when you would say something about someone behind their back that you would never say to their face. You ever done that? All right. Flattery is just the opposite. It's when you would say something to someone's face that you would never say behind their back. All right. It's just the opposite. And these people are seeking to flatter Jesus because of self-serving reasons. It's the way flattery always works, okay? And, And their flattery is filled with irony. Because actually what they're saying to Jesus is true. And they say, as in, uh, in a sense, three things about him. First of all, it says, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly. Now that word rightly is the word orthos. Maybe you've heard the term orthodoxy. It's where that word comes from or where orthodoxy comes from. This word here. You, you're orthodox. You're orthodox in your teaching. You you speak rightly about the things of God. That Terry gave me that water and he filled it with ice. So I'll be crunching on ice as I preach. (laughs) Secondly, he says, they, they say to him, you truly or you show no partiality. What are they saying there? Well, Jesus has no problem rebuking the religious leaders. He has no problem rebuking the Roman authorities. He does not fear man and he shows no partiality with man. If he's in the, the company of, a, of, a, of someone who would have been considered, um, you know, upwardly mobile in that culture, or if he had been in the presence of a very poor servant in that culture, he shows no partiality. That teaches us something right there. Thirdly, it says, they said of him, they, you truly teach the way of God. Which is another way of saying, you teach that we are um, responsible to the law of God. You teach the way of God, which is the very law of God. The law of God is abiding upon us. And so they are flattering him, but behind the flattery is irony because what they say to him actually is true. And after the flattery, they ask him this clever kind of no-win question. Notice verse 22. Is it lawful for us to give tribute 
to Caesar or not. Now, this is obviously intended to trap him. The, the tax issue was a big issue for the Jews. It was called the Roman poll tax, P-O-L-L tax. Um, essentially, it was a tax that was instituted in 6 A.D. that required Israel, the adults in Israel, to pay for living on their own property, their own land. Uh, it was the it was a a sum a debt they had to pay for the privilege of living and breathing on their own land. And let's just say the Jews weren't real fond of that tax. But here's the issue. If Jesus answers no to the question, then what he is going to be charged with is insurrection. The Romans will have his head if he says it is not right to pay taxes to Rome. If he says yes, it is right to pay taxes to Rome, the Jews will see him as a traitor. The Jews will see him as collaborating with Rome. So it's a no-win situation. In fact, the Jews, remember, uh, their hope was in a Messiah who would liberate them from Rome, which means liberate them from Roman taxes. And so they must have thought at this point that they had Jesus where they wanted him. They've asked him a question that there's no way he can possibly get out of. But there was one major flaw with their strategy. It's a major flaw. They assumed that things either belong to Caesar or to God, but not in some way to both. And that gives Jesus the opportunity as wisdom incarnate to escape their entrapment. Notice in verse 23. He perceived their craftiness. That word is used of the devil in 2 Corinthians 11, by the way. He perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. A denarius was a silver coin. It was the, it was the coin used for paying the taxes. But even more importantly, it was a coin that had the Caesar's mug on it. All right? Uh, the Caesar's image was on the coin with these words, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. All right? By having his name on that coin, or his picture on that coin, it signaled that the coin belonged to him. All right? And so, not only that, the Jews considered this a violation of the second commandment. Thou shalt not make unto thee a graven image. He was considered a God. Having his picture on that coin. He was considered a God. And here was an image of a false God. And so this tax and this coin was egregious to the Jews. Well, look with me in verse 24, the second part. He says, Whose likeness and inscription does it have? Of course, they know the answer to that question. And they said, Caesar's. And he said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And to God, the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. 
But marveling at his answer, they became silent. Let me speak to that a moment, then we'll come back to what he is saying in particular. They're not able to catch him because of the wisdom of his words. He is wisdom incarnate. Uh, we're, we're reading Proverbs with our kids uh, at night, often. And what I'm trying to press home to my children is that this wisdom that we read of in Proverbs is found in a person. Christ is the wisdom from God, Paul tells us, okay? And so, wisdom is essentially um, Christ being formed in us, all right? And here we have an example of wisdom incarnate, and they are marveling at His words. Um, this wisdom that is seen here is what Mark Strauss calls disarming ambiguity. Um, the way he answered the question is disarming ambiguity. And so consequently, they, they're silenced by his answer. They don't know how to respond. The Son of God and His wisdom has struck again. I mean, they, they couldn't argue with the first part of this answer. Uh, this has Caesar's mug on it. It has Caesar's picture on it, which means this coin belongs to Caesar. Who could object to giving to Caesar what was already his. That's the issue there. But this is probably the best place to begin in understanding the relationship between politics and religion. This particular text. But what does it mean? What does it mean to render to Caesar what is Caesar and to God what is God's? Broadly speaking, Jesus is saying we have a duty to the state and we have a duty to God. Now, to be true, Jesus does not give us a whole lot of information here about what happens when the state and God uh, conflict with one another. Do you think that ever happens? Oh, my goodness. Um, however, we can... We can draw from other texts to help us come to terms with that. To begin with, some things really do belong to Caesar. Some things really do belong to the state. Jesus isn't overthrowing the Roman government. That's not why he came. And furthermore, the authority that is given to the state is given to the state by who do you think? By God. Uh, in Romans chapter 13, verse 1, the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. You say, well, he doesn't know about our president. And he didn't. But his Caesar at the time was Nero. Nero used to set Christians on fire and watch them burn. He'd put them on horses and watch them ride around his stable just for entertainment. And Paul is saying Nero was instituted by God. The authority was given to him by God. And so there are things that really belong to God. And so Jesus is establishing the principle here that there's one realm of authority 
that belongs to the civil, civil government. And then there's an authority under the direct authority of God. Now, in my study for this sermon, uh, I found Wayne Grudem and his book on politics very helpful. It is an extraordinarily helpful book. And he argues that this distinction is going to lead us to two broad principles that we want to work from a moment. First of all, the church shouldn't govern the things that are Caesar's. The church should not govern the things that are Caesar's. That's what happens when there's no separation. That's what happens in Islamic countries that are compelling religion. The church should not in any way uh, govern the things that are Caesar's. And we can see that in the New Testament. You see the elders and the apostles in the New Testament. There's no sense in which they're involved in politics. Okay? What are they doing? They're preaching the gospel. They believe that the real hope of the world is not Caesar. The real hope of the world is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we saw it in Luke chapter 12. This man comes to Jesus and says, Look, I've got a brother and he's got this inheritance and I need him to give me half the inheritance. Would you work with me? He said, No. He said, Who made me an arbitrator? Who made me a judge over you? And then he deals with the man's coveting heart. Luke, uh, Luke tells us there that Jesus is concerned about the man's spiritual state, not his physical inheritance. But the second thing we need to understand as well is that the civil government shouldn't govern the things that are God's. That's just as important. If the first point is the, go- the church shouldn't govern the civil government, the second point is the civil government shouldn't govern the things that are God's. And do you know that we are protected by that, or from that, in our Constitution? In the First Amendment, here's what it says. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment or religion, or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Now, we do have activist judges today. And these guys are reinterpreting the Constitution left and right. So that is a concern. But we are protected legally by the First Amendment there. And again, you can see this in the New Testament. um, That it wasn't Rome who appointed the elders in the churches, was it? Paul would write, here are the qualifications of an overseer. Here are the qualifications of an elder. Here are the qualifications of a deacon. Now you, as a church, discern who those men are. So it was the church's responsibility, not Rome's. With that said, what are the things that we are to render to Caesar? It's a very important question. It might not be the question you're asking this morning as you're struggling with health or family issues, but we are trying to construct a Christian worldview by which we, uh, you know, perceive reality. And so it's a very important question. What are the things we are to render under to Caesar? Well, Philip Ryken is very helpful here in his work on this text. The first thing, based on the conversation in the text, is we are to pay our taxes. We are to pay our taxes. In fact, if you look over in Romans 13 again, Verse 6 and 7, it says, For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God. Attending to this very thing, pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes 
are owed. Now, I wish that wasn't in the Bible. I really do. Um, And it's not saying that we as Christians shouldn't seek to influence our government officials on the amount of taxes we pay. But the fact is, we are responsible to pay our taxes, which means we don't cheat on our taxes. We are faithful to Jesus in our taxes. And of course, um, Jesus is saying this in the context of the Roman Empire who hated the people of God. And Paul is saying that in Romans 13 in the context of Nero who hated... In fact, he... uh, It's very likely that Nero blamed the burning of Rome on Christians. Okay? And so, uh, those are the context for those words. Secondly, we're to pray. We're to pray for our leaders. 2 Timothy or 1 Timothy 2. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says. First of all, then I urge that supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high position, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Notice, this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. I don't know about you, but that is convicting to me. Uh, We do pray for our president and for our governor and mayor and uh, the Senate and Congress. We pray for that as a family about once a year, maybe. It's not a regular thing. Uh, I don't know about you, but I complain more than I intercede. Uh, And I'm convicted. And, And part of the reason I complain with people is because I want them to see in my pride that I'm on the right side. All right? And so I complain so that they can perceive this guy is on the right side of things. But if I'm complaining and I'm not interceding, I'm actually on the wrong side of things. Oswald Chambers says, when God gives you discernment on a matter, it's not for the purpose of criticism, it's for the purpose of intercession. And so it may be that if God's people would pray, starting with me, rather than complain it may be we could see some things differently in Washington, D.C. So we have a responsibility to pray. I would commit that to you. We haven't done that on Monday nights as we should. We've done it some nights. But uh, we need to commit to do that. To pray for the kings, for the presidents, for those who are in political uh, leadership. Thirdly, civil obedience. What do we owe Caesar? We owe him civil obedience. That is, when the laws are not in conflict with the law of God. Now, there are some things that are lawful politically and with regard to civic duty and responsibility and privilege, but they're not lawful before God. And sometimes we we get that confused. We think, well, this is lawful. It's lawful to do this in a state, but that doesn't mean it's lawful before God. Like the legalization of marijuana, or the, or the redefinition of marriage, or abortion. Just because they're lawful uh, before Caesar does not mean they're lawful before God. So we, we, we owe Caesar civic obedience. But when our 
obedience to Caesar comes in conflict with the Word of God, the Gospel of God, we must disobey. We must, with Peter and John and Acts, obey God rather than man. And there's coming a day, unless something changes, that there are going to be certain sins, okay, that the Scripture is very clear on that the government will deem as hate speech. And there are many who believe that churches may lose their tax-free status if preachers preach this hate speech that the government has defined. We must obey God rather than men. Okay? There may come a day when it's illegal to preach that Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation. We must obey God rather than men and then be willing to face the sanctions of our civil disobedience. Fourthly, uh, we owe Caesar participation in public life. Now that begins with uh, voting. We, as the people of God, are responsible to vote. Okay? But we must vote not in line primarily with our political affiliation, but with the Word of God. So there, there are some Christians, it, it absolutely boggles my mind they will stick with a party no matter what. When a particular official is pro-abortion and pro-redefinition of marriage, God help us. There is a hierarchy of issues, okay? And the moral issues take precedence over everything. And, and so when we're trying to protect the most innocent, helpless victims, the, the babies in the womb, that, ta- that comes first. It comes before political affiliation. Or you've got an idol on your hands. Okay? So we must vote. And secondly, there are some who are called to uh, military service. Praise God for those. Uh, God raises up these guys to protect us, to preserve democracy and liberty, and to help other countries with that. There are some who are called to be chaplains, um, whatever it may be, or even government officials. But if there are some things that belong to Caesar... What belongs to God? He says, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, but to God, to God. In short, everything. Including Caesar. Alright? All things were created through Christ and for Christ. Colossians 1, 16. Romans 11, verse 36. Of Him and through Him and in Him are all things. All things belong to Caesar. Which means, as Grudem helps us here again, civil government should help and encourage local churches. One example of that is the support in uh, granting us tax-exempt status. Okay? Now, why do we uh, need or why do we deserve tax-exempt status and government support for chaplains, chaplains in the military and, and, and chaplains in the U.S. prisons? Well, all of these should flow from the government's responsibility to, as to use the Constitution, promote the general welfare of its people. And churches promote the general welfare of its people. And sadly, some people have lost sight of that fact, that churches in some way promote general welfare. Um, 
And this is seen in the municipal zoning laws that are new. You see it in New York City right now. It's becoming increasingly difficult for churches to buy land or buildings to have church. They're making the zoning laws almost impossible for churches uh, because of their misunderstanding. And so, um, even Caesar belongs to God. Because no matter how evil Caesar is, Caesar is made in the image of God. The coin is on the... The coin is the image of Caesar. Well, guess what? Caesar is the image of God. It's almost like he himself is the coin. And as a result of that, um, he belongs to God, just as the coin belongs to Caesar. Of course, secular people have a cow when you say that because they believe religion needs to be completely out of politics because they believe the hope of the world is found in politics, not religion. But Jesus refuses to bow to Caesar. That's what he's doing here. He's refusing that. And that's why Christians are constantly in conflict with Caesar. That's <laughs> why we're always in conflict with um, Caesar. But it doesn't mean we're in charge of Caesar. The state is not an extension of the church. We have to keep that in mind. And the reformers helped explain this by speaking of two kingdoms. You had the, the kingdom of the state, the sphere of authority of the state, and it renders the sword, okay, to um, protect against evil, to restrain evil, to promote social order. And the state functions in that way for life and property and temporal um, relations on earth. And so you got the sphere of the state, but then you have the sphere of God. The sphere of the state renders the sword. The sphere of God renders the sword of the Spirit. And it's through the sword of the Spirit that people are subdued to God as they behold the glory of God in Jesus Christ and are melted and submit to Him in repentance and faith. But this has an even wider application, this last phrase. Render unto God what is God's. Because the application there means that God is saying we are to render everything to Him. Including our lives, our resources, our time, our families. And, and as I was thinking about what does that mean? What does that mean? As I was reflecting on that, because it's easy to deceive the heart. It's easy to say, well, I've done that. I have rendered to God what is God's, you know. But it's easy to deceive your heart, okay? And I was thinking about those words that man in the Bahamas told me about his children. Could it not mean, in part, that if you've rendered to God what is God's, your life is going to be centered around the local church? And that sounds legalistic to people. It really does. There are certain people that sounds legalistic to. As if there's another avenue by which Christian life is to be played out. Now it's more than that. But it's not less than that. If you have rendered to God what is God's. Your life will be centered around the organism that He has redeemed. The body of Christ. In fact, Hebrews 10 
He says, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together, which is the habit of some of you. We have, we've hijacked that verse. And we've used it to, um, to put on our posters on high attendance Sunday. We haven't had that here, but I've seen that growing up. Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. But if you read that verse in its context, it comes in the context of the most heinous judgments in all the New Testament. The writer is saying, if you, if you forsake the assembling of yourselves together, you may not be a Christian. And so I believe that that's where it starts. If I'm going to render unto God what is God's, my life is going to be centered around body life. Now, it's going to begin there. And that's not the end of it, but that's the starting point. You give Him your life. I want my children, when they remember their childhood, I want it to be centered around Fisherville. I want their memories to be saturated with Fisherville. You say that's legalistic. Then read your New Testament. The New Testament is saturated with body life. Render under Caesar what is Caesar and God's what is God's. And we are God's because we are created in the image of God. And just like that Caesar had his image on the coin reflecting, that's my coin. God has His image uh, stamped on us saying, You are mine. And perhaps the greatest demonstration, uh, demonstration of that is the cross itself. Because what God does in the cross, He goes in and He does a restoration project. There are those that He created for Himself, but who are not living for Him. They're living in rebellion to Him. They're separated from Him. They're alienated from Him. They don't love Him. And so He sends His Son on a restoration mission, if you will. A renewal mission. To save a people. And the Son, in order to save them, takes the cross. He takes the wrath of God. He's raised from the grave, demonstrating the debt has been paid. And for those who believe, we are restored back to God. Our image is restored and renewed. And that's what the Lord's Supper signals as well. 